All right, so back again. This time we're going to talk about Gilles Deleuze's Gilles Deleuze's Cinema One, the movement image. And I'm joined by Christina this time, thank God, because I would be doomed <laughs> if I had to talk about this on my own. So, Christina, who are you? All right, so I'm Christina L. Burke. I'm a third year PhD student at the Center for the Study of Theory and Criticism. Uh, my work specializes in the relationships between French cinema and French philosophy, particularly French New Wave cinema, and its relationship with philosophy. Basically, Godard is my person, but I've dabbled a bit in Deleuze in the past. Um, what else to say? Uh, I'm also a short story writer. I've written a screenplay. I always love to plug that. Um, so I also, I guess, come to these books with a real sort of creative mindset, I guess. Uh, I I don't just read them as, uh, you know, uh, tools for analyzing films or as philosophy books. I see a real creative project going on here. And that's, that's one thing that really draws me to both the cinema books, but especially this first one now. Having finally read the whole thing, I was putting it off for years. <laughs> yeah, because you'd read the second one. Oh yeah, cinema too is wonderful. I love the time image. <laughs> you see, I have no... Like, I, I haven't read that one, so this is my only, like, point of entry so far. Um, but you're also on Twitter and Instagram. Yes, I'm also on Twitter, yeah, at Cello Burke, uh, the instrument, and then Burke. Um, yeah, and I just uh, share dumb posts. Uh, I'm horny on main a lot, as one should be. Uh, and, yeah, just come follow me. There's pretty cat pictures on Instagram. Uh, it's true. It's true. Yeah. There are. There are. Uh, yeah, so... Um, anything else before we dive into this thing? Uh, oh yeah, I got my big sponsors that I have to mention. Oh, that I okay. No, I'm kidding. I don't have any sponsors. <laughs> I make no money. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we could just jump right in. Like, where do you want to start? Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with the English preface. Oh, this is, this is yeah. where I started taking notes. Um, cause I think, I think right away we'll, we'll see some differences between this and uh, conventional film theory, or sure. um, what in the 1980s were the dominant trends of film theory. And I think that's maybe something really interesting to think about when reading this, is Deleuze is in a very particular milieu. He's writing in France in the 1980s, and he's writing in response both to a kind of popular film criticism and an academic one. And he's also writing very much as a philosopher, self-conscious that he's not a film person. And so he tries to be very humble at points, I think, and other times deeply ambitious. And he'll say things like, look, I'm not a film scholar, (laughs) but let me tell you about all these movies I've seen. Yeah. Um, So uh, I also think, too, it's interesting to think about uh, what what these books are coming out in English and what that environment looked like in 1986. Yeah. So English language, uh, film, I guess, academic criticism in the late 1980s was really driven by a focus on uh, feminism and psychoanalysis. Okay. Coming out of uh, 70s works on, like, linguistics and psychoanalysis. Like, who do you have any, like, names? To... Um, big names in the 80s, I guess. Uh, Kaja Silverman is someone I think about. She wrote a lot about semiotics. Uh, she has a whole book, The Subject of Semiotics, that talks about that. Um, we're also in the age of people like uh, Marianne Doan's early writings, Teresa DeLourdes, people like that. Uh, so we're in an age where there's 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 a paradigm for film analysis. And right. it's, it's very psychoanalytic, starting with Mulvey's sort of work on the male gaze and then expanding to talk about, like, partial objects and, like, the imaginary and these kinds of things. Right. So when Cinema One gets published in English, and I think... Ooh, I can check this. It should be on the inside here. Somewhere so right. it gets published in English in 1986. Yeah. Uh, it was written in 80? 83? 83. Cinema 1 is 83. Cinema 2, I think, is 85. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Cinema 1 comes out, and I don't think anyone in film studies, or really in any humanities discipline in the English-speaking world, really knows what to do with it. Sure. Um, 
it's just this this strange book talking about these thinkers who really don't have much of a reception in English. Henri Bergson. Yeah. And then Peirce had no place in 1980s film theory. And those are the two big figures that kind of like, you know, find their way into this text. And they're two figures I know virtually nothing about. <laughs> and I, But I, actually, you know quite a bit. No? Do, do are, I? Are we starting to Liz puns already? I mean, do, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, but yeah, so I think these these books had a very cold reception especially in film uh for a little while until the 90s when uh Dan Rodowick wrote Gilles Deleuze's Time Machine and he sort of uh did a kind of recapitulation and analysis of cinema one and two and framed it in terms of Deleuze's larger philosophy mm-hmm. and I think that really started off the sort of English language reception of these and books. That, okay, that okay, that for me is those are the parts that stood out for me. As soon as he talks about deterritorialization, lines of flight, things like that, things that yeah. come up in A Thousand Plateaus and um Anti Oedipus. And it's those moments that I felt like I understood the most. But yeah, we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, so just to finish the introduction, um one of the things that this is going to be uh, really different from classical film theory or post-classical film theory of the 1980s is how we are dealing with what he at one point describes as pre-verbal intelligible content. So sure. this is this is not film as a language mm-hmm. or as he'll say somewhere else. I can't remember. I've been looking at a lot of things. He says if film is a language, it's an analogical language. It's sort of like a compar- comparison of all these different signs. Right. Sure. Um, which is very different from the like classical linguistic school of film theory where you're looking at like a sequ- a film a sequence from a film is like an utterance and you're treating it like a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Um so in this first book, he's talking about the movement image, which he's gonna break down into three parts, and he kind of repeats this that the movement image is an indirect representation of time sure and we can get into what that means but i think it's really interesting that he he wants to foreground all these terms in the english language preface because i think and we can see this in the book there's a anxiety on his part to get to time okay yeah he he wants to get there yeah yeah like the movement image he's always like he's always finding these limit points yeah yeah and yeah. he's like, and this is where it breaks down. And the time, the time image is always implied to some extent. Like yes. If if we're dealing with movement, how do you dissociate time from that? Like, how do you how do you bracket that off? Yeah, so. it's 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 more a question of subordination. That in movement sure. images, time is subordinated to movement. It's only communicated to us through movement. Okay. We'll, we'll get to that in the Burke song, definitely. Um, but there's one last thing he says, or that I want to talk about. Uh, before we get to maybe a few things from the French preface, is he at one point says the cinema is as perfect as it can be, and 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 I absolutely right. love this. Yeah. I, I love that he he sees in cinema, and I definitely think he takes this from Bergson. He sees in cinema an endless kind of novelty. Sure, that the cinema is always. Uh, I think it will, he uses the phrase, unless it is violently destroyed, mm-hmm. then uh, the cinema will continue to renew itself. And I just think that's beautiful. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful sentiment. And, okay, and this is, this is a question that might have no ground here, but I'm going to ask it anyways. When I was reading this, I was getting a lot of benamine here as well. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? I've, I've definitely made that comparison. Um, there's that line in the work of art in the age of the mechanical reproduction where Benjamin talks about uh, how we live these lives in these very static places. Yeah. And then yeah. film comes along and the expression is like with the dynamite of a tenth of a second, yeah. film sort of explodes these places. And then in these explosions, we go wandering. Yeah. And so I think this this idea of wandering, particularly in European cinema is going to be really big for Deleuze at the end of the book, and then Cinema 2 starts from there. Okay, yeah. Um, so there there definitely is, I guess, a hint of Benjamin in here. 
Though I don't know that... I don't know that Deleuze has the same, um, I guess, aesthetic concerns as Benjamin. Sure. Benjamin was very interested in, like, a particular idea of cinema tied to surrealism and montage. And I think Deleuze has a, pun intended, more open conception yeah. of cinema. Right. Um, and there's a lot more that film can do than it could for Benjamin. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, and yeah, so the, the French preface just kind of builds on the English one. He talks about taxonomy, not history. And this is probably the best way to look at it, because if you look at this book in terms of film history, and I'm sure I'll have a bunch of points to bring up, it's it's baffling. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, this is not great history. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's very much... Uh, it's taxonomy is a fair word it's like he sees signs and then he is defining films by these groupings of signs yeah breaks them into their schools this is what they do and that's it yeah that's what they do (laughs) yeah the french french films are all about water uh movement (laughs) they find their way into the gaseous maybe yeah reserved for the germans we'll get there we'll get there yeah, and so the other thing to, I guess, deal with, and this is also going back to, um, again, so 1980s film theory, uh, very psychoanalytic, very sort of semiotic, does not like the auteur theory. Why not? Uh, it's patriarchal, it's uh, formalist, it's... Uh, by formalist, I mean auteur critics kind of look at a film and go, this is this director's style. Yep. And they define the directors by their style. It's not even really biographical. It's very formal. Mm-hmm. And so this was seen as very sort of like ideological by critics in the 1980s that this this model, this the auteur was kind of like a bourgeois subjective yeah. sort of figure. Sure. Yeah. And Deleuze is having none of this. Yeah. He's, he is like directors are like philosophers they create images of movement time philosophers create concepts yep. this is how i'm going to talk about this yeah yeah and it's really interesting to me that he he takes this approach um because this is an approach that would have flied in the face not only of the english language sort of scholarship but also french scholarship as well which was also concerned with enunciation and things like that so Deleuze is really setting himself up in a very kind of popular mode here. He's doing what magazine film criticism does, which is take this idea of auteurs seriously. Yeah. Um, and I think he shows this a lot with the thinkers he refers to. So it's a lot of... Um, he sees directors as kind of the greatest thinkers of cinema. Eisenstein will come up a lot. Uh, Pasolini, Romer. Griffith. Yeah, <laughs> Griffith. We can talk about Griffith. Um, Hawks. Ford. Hawks, definitely. Hawks and Ford. Uh, but, like, too, he's... The, the people he uses, like Jean Mitri... Yeah. Um, ...is a writer who is mainly concerned with aesthetics. Uh, a little bit of semiology in there, but early. And not, not as refined as, say, the later stuff. Or uh, André Bazin is someone he brings up a lot, yeah. too. So the pop, probably the most popular French film critic there is so i think i think there's this real interesting mixture of the filmmakers know what they're talking about i'm gonna use them sort of as my basis yeah and then there's a little bit of like popular criticism in there um noel birch is another one who was uh who was very again a very formalist sort of critic um not someone who was really talking about enunciation we're talking about framings things like that uh so i think it's really interesting where Deleuze positions his research out of it's a much more formal concern than sort of ideological or spectatorial yeah i'm not even really sure if the question of the spectator shows up in this book it'll come up in cinema too but i think toward the end there's there's the uh, when he's talking about hitchcock i think maybe okay yeah yeah that's true yeah because yeah the 
the question of the spectator and who it is is really important in cinema too and it's quite strange it's it's, it's brief here like yeah. it's definitely brief yeah um so yeah that's that's i guess most of it uh i mean as a warning to anyone who encounters these books there's no reproductions there's no film stills in these books <laughs> yeah yeah exactly he's, and he's just dropping names like yeah. if you haven't seen the films and the, like i mentioned to you earlier i did my first degree in technically film studies and thank god like it gave me some kind of frame of reference for a lot of these these movies these films yeah. and a lot of these directors but yeah no stills no you're <laughs> gonna get no help here google will be your best friend if you plan on reading this or or it'll work against you because one of the things about these books i don't want to i don't want to be one of those thinkers who criticizes the translation Okay. I, I don't like doing that. And I actually think the translation's pretty good, conceptually. But a lot of the film titles have been translated from their French titles. The translators did not look up the English yeah, sure. language titles. Really? Uh, and this will be a bigger problem in cinema, too, because the movies get more obscure. Sure. But, yeah, in this, like, in this book, there were a few moments where I'm like, that's not the title of the movie. <laughs> I know what that movie is. And there's some where I'm just like, I don't know. I've never... What is... I, th- I think I know the names of Griffith's films. I don't know. Yeah, this yeah, one... Yeah. yeah. Is it a short? Or is it... Or did the translators just like translate it from the French? Because I don't think this book was translated by film people. I think it was translated by like Dilla's translators who had like just gotten through anti-oedipus or grad and, students yeah trying to get some credit yeah well some... i think i think hugh tomlinson one of the translators did work on anti-oedipus oh really yeah okay so he'd he was familiar with deleuze okay um but i don't i don't think he's necessarily a film person yeah, yeah. Uh, and that comes through i think yeah, <laughs> in I mean, this that, that'd be a good yeah. explanation i i would love if there was a way the publisher of these books could just um, reprint the translation, but do do a proper glossing of with the, the, the films, yeah. so that you can actually like read these books, and then if you're interested in what he's talking about, you can actually go find it a bit easier than yeah it is right now. Yeah, yeah. So, Bergson. Bergson. <laughs> what do we have to know about Bergson to know what's going on here? Um. We have to know a little bit. We have to know a little bit from matter and memory, and we have to know a little bit from creative evolution. All right. And then I and then I think we're good. Lay it on us. Okay, so at the beginning, chapter one, Theses on Movement. This stuff I think it's it's graspable. And uh, I'll try and explain it in terms in terms of Bergson's work where necessary. But the basic idea is that movement is distinct from space covered. So space is homogeneous and movement is heterogeneous. Yep. And so the thing you can't do is you can't reconstitute movement from immobile sections. Okay. So what does this mean? (laughs) Immobile sections are like putting something under a microscope. Okay. And taking a picture of it. And then analyzing the picture and not the thing under the microscope. Sure. Okay. Good. I, <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. So they're like specific moments or points on a line. Yeah. And for Bergson in creative evolution, there's two types of thinking. And there's thinking movement in the pure sense of duration which is uninterrupted and continuous. And then there's this mechanical form of thinking where you talk about points on a line. And so this is, this is what Deleuze is going to get at in a minute is when you have real movement, you have concrete duration. Yeah. And when you have immobile sections, you kind of have abstract time or measured time. So, in creative evolution, Bergson calls this measured time, or this abstract time, thinking cinematographically. Bergson says that. Yes. Yes. So, Bergson here is thinking of a film projector, and he's thinking of a film strip. Mm -hmm. 
And what he's saying is like mechanical ways of thinking work like a film strip going through the projector. They measure in terms of points one at a time. Yes. Yes. What Deleuze wants to say. And, and, and he, to say it quickly first before yeah. say more about it, Bergson didn't appreciate that very much. Like he saw, he saw the, the filmic strip as being limited in that way because you're only seeing them in terms of these points. Yes. Yes. So he, he, he kind of damned the whole thing based on the apparatus. He's right. like, when, when he talks about cinematographic thinking, what he's thinking of is the projector. Yeah. He's thinking of that part of cinema. But he's not really thinking of the image. Sure. And this is where Deleuze does, we can call it a quasi-Duridian move, where he's like, hey, the experience of cinema isn't immobile sections. Right. We don't see each break between each frame when yeah. we watch a film. It's a continuous image of movement. Yeah. And so um, the cinema corrects the abstraction that goes on in the projector. There's something that takes place in projection that makes a movement image. So, okay, to bring it back to your analogy of the microscope. So yeah. let's say the thing that is being looked at through the microscope has life. Like yeah. It has movement. It is there. It is present. And then taking a picture of the thing we see through, through the microscope kind of freezes it. It stops it. But if you take many of these pictures, right, in a sequence and then play it on a through a film reel, does it give it back its life or is it a new life that is that is separate from the original thing? It becomes, so I think for Deleuze, this is a good question to think about because it does get weird. Deleuze doesn't see the cinema as mimesis. Okay, yeah. So. Like a copy of yeah. the original. So the, the movement image isn't derived from real movement. Yeah. What you would be doing is you'd be making an image whose movement is determined by by the whatever you're analyzing under the microscope. So yeah. you'd get a kind of microbe image, yeah. for lack of a better term. And so I think that's where it's really interesting, but it wouldn't necessarily correspond to the image you see looking directly at it. Yeah. Or um, the still shots on their own would constitute something else. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's really interesting uh in terms of you know thinking about it in terms of of how the cinema has two poles and this is something he's going to return to everything seems to have two poles yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and so it has on the material side the actual side it is this mechanical thing but yeah. then in its practice it is movement duration virtual yeah. in a way and so i think this is sort of the first connection deleuze makes between cinema and thinking because okay. we can we can think both ways too according yeah. to bergson we have mechanical thinking but we also have intuition yeah yeah and you know we we need a bit more intuition we just can't reduce everything to this mechanical form of thought yeah and i think it's interesting that and this is a bit of foreshadowing but he he quotes bergson or paraphrases him and he talks about how the essence of a thing never appears at the beginning, but in the middle. Right, right, right. In the in the, the in the middle of its development. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so, what is the analogy? You might not remember, but he gives an analogy <laughs> that that is really apt. Like, um, I it's not important. Never mind. Not important. <laughs> okay. Uh, but like, just just saying. Remember this when we get to the time image, um, because that's gonna be that's gonna be the essence of the thing. I think for Deleuze. Um, and yeah, so, so we also get here the first bit of, uh, the, the formal aspects of Deleuze's thinking. So for him, a shot, like in a film, how to describe a shot without a visual reference, uh, just any unbroken section of film is a mobile section. Right. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's captured movement. Yeah. Um, and so these mobile sections are arranged on like a temporal plane. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is, this is the first thing, is that shots are mobile sections. We'll get into what the immobile parts are in a little bit. But yeah, so that's the first formal element, I guess. And then part two, we moved on. We're expanding on, I guess, the same thing with privileged instance and any instant whatevers. Right. And so, um, like, privileged instants are what we see in uh, Tableau, in painting, in that sort of mechanical form of knowledge where you freeze something. Yeah. It's based around the kind of pose or the gesture. Yeah. And so, okay, so is it reserved then only for these, I guess, more antiquity? antiquated forms of like you know world production in 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 art does the cinema ever participate in that yeah i i think when we get to eisenstein we'll see that okay because what what happens is that cinema is made up of what are any instant whatevers yeah so just again these these mobile sections of their imminent material elements yeah and so with cinema, what we get are uh, equidistant instants, I think is the term he uses, which means that these instants are not sort of divided unequally. We see them one after another. It creates a sense of continuity. Uh, and there's a sense of description in cinema. That's these accumulation of any instant whatevers are a description of a situation. Yeah, use a term. So whatever privileged instance there are in cinema, they come from any instant whatever. So... Right, right, right. Okay. Any moment in a film can be singular or ordinary. Yeah. Uh, like, or like regular or remarkable the, the or, kind know. of thing that you know in an introductory class or any kind of film studies class you know you you're going to be dealing with stills these stills are these privileged instances yeah. among these any any instances whatevers any yeah. instance whatevers any space whatevers yeah whatever yeah exactly i think uh just as an aside before we keep going i would love to get my hands on a introduction to film class and teach it using these books. Oh yeah. Oh well. Could you imagine? And just just be like, I'm going to teach you how to understand film with this. Yeah. This is this is this is your formal training. You're going to start would, here. They would drop the course. They, oh, they, it it'd be. They read the preface. Oh wait, no, they wouldn't read the preface. They'd read yeah. the first page and then they'd be like, what? Yeah. It's it'd be it'd be it'd be. Excuse me. It would be very difficult. But I just think, like, because rereading this, I noticed just how, like, formal this was. And I just had a feeling, like, imagine if this is how you learn to understand cinema. And see, because I meant... Imagine you're in, like, a third-year room, and you're just, you just start talking about any instant whatever, and the professor's just like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, I did my degree in that, and I never, I never read this. I didn't even know this existed until long after I finished my bachelor's. Yeah. Like... Yeah, I encountered this in a French film course where one of the students was really interested in continental philosophy, so she presented on this. Oh, yeah. And it was a very difficult, dense presentation. I bet it was. And then uh, I used a little bit of Deleuze in my undergrad thesis, not really knowing what I was doing. Yeah. But I, I used a little bit of it. And yeah, I came to this much later. And yeah. just just now, my feeling like, oh, I I see what you're doing. Okay. Okay. It's um, good you know what's going on. Yeah. And so I think the thing to talk about the any instant whatever, just one last thing, is like, this is really like, cinema draws the new from yeah. any instant whatever. Yeah. And that, I think, is really very Bergsonian because the Bergson dictum is new things happen all the time. Sure. Uh, and, like, going back to that whole, the cinema is always as perfect as it can be. Like, it is always producing new things. Like, there is no... There is no terminal point here. There is no fixed thing. Right. Uh, so, the third part is where we're going to get into maybe some 
philosophy terms. How exciting. That I can't uh, wait. Let's do it. <laughs> so he starts talking about how movement expresses change in duration or change in the whole. Yeah. So which, which is open? Which is open. We'll get we'll get to that. Because it's going to change at some point. Not in this book, but later. Uh, but yeah, so the whole is very easy to just read as a finished film. <laughs> I, I didn't take it as that. Yeah. I, I took it as like, if we're dealing, and this is, we're jumping the gun a little bit here, but if we talk about a shot, it is what is, it's what extends beyond the mise-en-scene being like everything that it could have been in that moment like mm-hmm. the, the cinema is prepared to go there it might not have <laughs> but it's like it it's always available that's how i understood it am i off base no i think i think you're very close because i think Deleuze wants the whole to serve multiple functions and okay. that yes we can use it to talk about a finished film we can use it to talk about an oeuvre we can use it to okay. talk about a school right we can use it to talk about the entire history of images human and non-human and the universe etc yeah okay so it's it's a very sort of vague term mm-hmm. but the easiest way to understand it is to just think yeah okay you have a shot and it gives us new information about the movie we're watching right (laughs) okay like that's the very very vulgar yeah like yes shots provide information great that information changes our understanding of what we're seeing right um but this is this isn't a narrative theory like Mm -hmm. it's it's not that it's 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 also like affective the information we're talking about could be all these types of things um and so Yes, the whole is the open, which means it changes constantly, yeah. but also that this isn't a closed set. Um, and it's hard not for me to like see a little bit of like maybe Badiou criticism here. How so? So Badiou, I think he wrote Being an Event in 1982. Okay. So I think Deleuze, if he hadn't read it, he would be familiar with it when he was writing these books. And I think he was very put off by this idea of, like, set theory and sets being, like, restricted closed spaces. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think with his idea of the whole, he's being like, no, no, this isn't a set. Sets partake in this. Yeah, set, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sets, sets do exist here. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's these aren't closed sets. They're defined by relations, but not fixed relations. Okay, yeah. Um. And so the whole or duration or time is like these whole sets of relations. Yeah. So like a finished film as a duration is made up of all the different shots within it. Yeah. And all the different framings and sets within the film itself. Um, so this is where we get an idea of what immobile sections are. They're frames. Yeah. They're like a single frame is an immobile section. Mm-hmm. But when you watch a film, you don't see just an immobile section. No, no, it's always it's always moving. Yeah, it's, it's mobile. Yeah, and it's always in relation. It's never closed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you have those immobile sections, which are abstract time. Those are sets, and then we have movement and duration, which is the whole. And so, again, we have these two poles. We pause a film. We're looking at an immobile section. We let the film run. We're experiencing yeah. duration. Um, and so these these experiences give rise to certain types of images. Yeah. And the two Deleuze wants to talk about the most uh, are movement images and time images. And he really wants to talk about time images, but he's going to talk about movement images first. We've got to wait. <laughs> we got to wait till the next book. Yeah, we've got we've to put it off. Uh, and yeah, we gotta, we got to earn it. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, no, it's just... This is absolutely fascinating to me that he... He picks Bergson, of all people, for this. Yeah, because like we mentioned earlier, Bergson did not have the highest regard of the film or of, of cinema generally. Of cinema generally. Uh, in France, uh, the phenomenologists hated Bergson, Sartre, Merlot... Merleau-Ponty liked Bergson, but was very critical of him. Yeah. Uh, he was very out of fashion, and Deleuze wrote um, one of his early works on Bergson, 
and I think Bergson is implicit in a lot of his stuff, but uh, when he gets to cinema, he's like, no, I'm being very explicit. This is all, this is all Bergson. Right. Yeah. It, but it's taking what Deleuze sees useful and being very clear about where he sees the limitations in Bergson's thought. Like, yeah, there are limits to thinking that, you know, uh, there is a limit to thinking that there is a limit to the way that we can interact with images as being like, either you have movement or you have images in consciousness and, and the two can never come together. Yeah. Is that in Bergsaw that Deleuze is like, it's like, no, no, you're wrong. No, Bergsaw is very much, um, he's going to be with Deleuze a long way in yeah. this journey. Um, especially this first book, it's very, it's very much, this is, this is all in some way in matter and memory. Okay. And I think that's important to keep in mind is what Deleuze is almost trying to make a correction that matter and memory was already a theory of cinema. Sure. And yeah, Bergson didn't quite grasp that. Yeah. He wrote creative evolution. Yeah. And I think that's what he's trying to get across is like, no, this was good. (laughs) You were you were contemporary. You yeah. had you had the right thing. You just weren't looking in the right place for the best representation of it. Yeah. And I'm going to explain that now. Yeah. Yeah. Um At the same time later on he will depart from Bergson and we'll get into other thinkers who are Dilla's favorites like Nietzsche. Right. <laughs> uh but for for now it's it's Bergson. And I don't know how much you want to talk about the second chapter. The second chapter is really formal. It's just if you frame. Think. I I took notes on it. You know, frames. We know what frame shots are framed. There are frames in frames sometimes. There are things outside of the frame that we don't see. Yeah, there are things outside of the frame we don't see. Uh, frames are very geometrical and dynamic. Uh, yeah, this this chapter was a bit of okay. I mean, I yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the frame gives us material for montage. Uh, he does at one point say the camera is a cinematographic consciousness, which, okay. Yes, we are going to talk about thinking with the camera. Um, the shot is the movement image. Talked about this earlier. Uh, I guess the one thing is we have a little bit of film history here. Here we go. So if we think if we think about the Lumiere Brothers films, uh, the arrival of a train at Lesio Tat, for example, uh, this isn't a movement image yet. The image is in movement. There's the movement of the train, but what you need are more shots put together. Yep. So they can express that kind of continuous duration. Yeah. That will make up the whole. Yeah. So so early cinema isn't quite there. So if you just have a camera sitting on the street, like you'd see in maybe Soviet type filmmaking, like yeah. just get, capturing factory workers, we don't yet have a movement image because we're just, we have this still camera capturing yeah. things moving, but we don't have what will come with like the montage of a collection of different shots at different periods that give us a kind of temporal linearity yet is not (laughs) is not linear but we we, we are made to believe that yeah yeah it's it's not yet fully descriptive of a situation right but i think it's important to keep in mind that once the camera starts moving we do have a movement image okay sure so uh, the example he gives is from Citizen Kane, and it's kind of funny because it's not really one shot, but he talks about that famous scene where the camera zooms in on the nightclub, and it goes in through the top of the ceiling into the nightclub in right. Citizen Kane, and of course, Wells did, this was a trick shot for Wells, he put two shots together, but it looks like one continuous tracking shot. Yeah, yeah. And so for Deleuze, this this is a movement image. Right. Like, it's it's putting these closed sets together and opening them up or like in goodfellas when the oh the, yeah absolutely that's I mean, uh, maybe more people have seen that 
Maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about to bring up a uh, extremely niche example. Uh, so the, the last thing he mentions is how shots can introduce a false continuity. And so an example of this is in Carl Dreyer, a Danish film director's film Ordet from 1955. <laughs> there, is, there is a shot where I believe a man is embracing his granddaughter. Okay. And the camera, the foreground is rotating counterclockwise. And then the background begins rotating uh, clockwise. Okay. Sort of around them. And the room spins completely. Okay, yeah. But it never goes behind the characters. So there's a discontinuity in the shot between the characters that we see and then the background spinning behind them. So they're moving relatively together. So that yes. we always see the same, we have the same um, kind of frame of reference. We have the same vantage point of the people. Yes. But, but we're moving. They're moving yes. and we're moving. Yeah, they're they're spinning, the background spinning, and it's it's an incredibly complex shot. Okay. In what is otherwise a fairly How would I describe it? It's not a movie that does these daring formal moves. Okay. But this part comes out of nowhere and yeah. the impossible happens. Yeah. And so this is going to be where Deleuze starts talking about direct images of time showing right. up. It's like false continuity, creating impossible images out of possible ones. That's yeah. going to be more of a time image. <laughs> and that's where movement sort of breaks down and time gets away from it. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. It's... It's a very obscure example he brings up, and I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't been like, oh, I should go watch that movie again. It's been it's been like 10 years since I saw it. Not yeah. that long, but close. Um, yeah, so let's talk about montage. <laughs> montage. That's an important one. Yeah. So montage, the third chapter, is going to introduce us to... Uh, well, let's just say what montage is. It's an assemblage that produces the indirect image of time. Okay, and then in English... <laughs> so, montage or editing. Yeah. Montage is a French word. You're right. I'll put it in English. Uh, editing uh, puts together shots, mobile sections into a more concrete duration. I think that this really reaches the... It's apotheosis is in the Rocky movies. <laughs> I don't, you're not wrong. <laughs> a collection of shots that move, that jump temporally quite a bit, or spatially, mm -hmm. and that by virtue of that are able to... It's like a synergy. It communicates something greater than its parts. Yeah. Is that safe to say? Yeah, but it's also it's also continuous, right? Yes, the, yes, it's the, continuous. the training montage is a narrative in miniature, right? It, yeah. It's or it's an affect in a series of miniatures. Like it it it's it's some it's showing us a transformation. Yeah. A continuous transformation. Yeah. yeah. It's it's not a discontinuous one. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, and he starts talking about the American cinema and its history of montage and Griffith and how Griffith has this very organic idea of montage. Which he relates to the organization or organism. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. This is, this is going to be a very big thing with Deleuze and American cinema. Cause I think after this book, he doesn't really talk about American cinema and cinema too. Um, oh no. Okay. <laughs> no. Right. So American cinema doesn't think. <laughs> <laughs> To put it to put it as bluntly as possible, American cinema doesn't really think. Right. It it has this very organic sort of basis, you yeah. know, and it doesn't have it doesn't have class consciousness. No. no it just it has this kind of universal history. Yeah. And so in Griffith, you know, you get these 
staged battles between ultimate good and ultimate evil and the sentimentality of good wins out over bad and i'm trying not to talk about birth of a nation but because it, it's horrible but that's the prevailing sentiment behind that movie and it is as far as i understood it for deleuze american cinema always resolves itself in a very nice equilibrium one that is just very it's very nice it's and it's like oh wow of course this american fantasy resolves itself in this beautiful way yeah. To which he obviously contrasts that. Not to say we have to talk about it quite yet, but with the dialectical montage of the Soviet. No, uh, let, the... let's get into it because that that is really the thing is in American cinema, you have this organic montage. And really, the, the only director he talks about with the early American cinema is Griffith. He'll talk yeah. about what I think and what I would call American directors later on, but he puts them with the Germans. Oh, really? Yeah. Von St- Eric von Stroheim, who started his career as one of Griffith's assistants, oh really? Uh, okay. Shows up later on, and he is not he he is considered to be doing. I think, I think he might be in one of the sections on lyrical abstraction. Yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll get there. Yeah. And uh, like Sternberg too is just treated as a German filmmaker, even though he started his career in America. Really, he was very much an American okay filmmaker uh, of German descent, but. Mm. Yeah, so there is there is this tendency to be like Griffith. Just this was American cinema. Yeah, um, I guess he also talks about Buster Keaton, but that's yeah. that's later. And the, the Marx Brothers. <laughs> yes, but yeah. yeah, the 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 like template for montage in American cinema: D.W. Griffith, parallel montage, obvious contrasts, contrasting rich and poor. Yeah, you know, man, woman, black, white. Yes. But, like, never never in a, like, uh, well, you said it. There's, there's like, an equilibrium. Yeah, it doesn't circumvent the, yeah. the, the binary itself. Yes. It's a, like, how can, I, we, how can we maintain this? How can we keep it there in harmony? Yes. And so with the Soviets, we get something quite different. With Eisenstein. Yes. Eisenstein. Eisenstein is very, very big for Deleuze. He will come up a lot uh again as a preview of cinema 2 there's a part where he reads eisenstein through kant and oh, really? it is oh it's it's something <laughs> so excited <laughs> let me tell you i love kant <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun but it's it's deeply it's a reading of eisenstein where i'm just like that's not what i oh no <laughs> oh no um so yeah with with eisenstein you get like Genesis and opposition, like the the one is dividing itself into two. Montage is oppositional, dialectical, associative. Um, it ushers in something new. Like yes. the, di- the dialectic does not is not interested in the parts that made it. It's interested in where those parts can lead it. Yes, and so I think the most obvious example is the lion statues in Battleship Potemkin. How we see, as as the proletarian revolution takes place, this lion statue in a successive series of shots seems as if it rises and roars. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, God, I remember that from my undergrad. <laughs> yeah. And so this is, this is, there's a kind of, like, pathetic element to this. There's a pathos in this being given through the way the shots are being put together. Yeah. And this is this is Eisenstein. Like um, the film October is just all of this about the October Revolution. Like it gets so abstract with what it's willing to put together. Yeah. Um, and so, like the whole here is not organic. It's it's self-producing. It's like there's there's con there's a productive conflict that's taking place. Um. And then I think it's interesting the, I think there's a conflict in Deleuze between where his sort of Soviet loyalties lie. Yeah. Because there's Eisenstein on one hand who he seems to respect a great deal, but then he also loves Vertov. Okay. And so Vertov has a different sort of perspective than Eisenstein. In Eisenstein there's this, there's you know, this clash between man and nature. Sure. And so 
you know, technical versus organic in Eisenstein's work. In Vertov, if you've seen Man with a Movie Camera... I don't think so. Okay, I strongly recommend it. It's about an hour. It's a Russian silent film, but it is incredible because he is just filming whatever he can off the street and then blending these images together and just associating this anywhere a camera can go yeah he will put it there or any you get... any instant whatever yeah um <laughs> yeah exactly uh and in any space whatever any space whatever. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um so like there's this real sort of merger of the camera and the eye sure and the eye sort of becomes machinic in a way. And I think for Deleuze, this is this is more it. It's, it's quite exciting for yeah. him because, you know, that's what you get when yeah. you read Deleuze. Like, yeah, this is machinic assemblages. Yeah, this is the desiring machine. Exactly. This is this is this is it. Yeah. Nearly exactly. Um so yeah, you you get you get a merger of man machine they're not they're not opposed they're yeah. not gonna there's not this war yeah that there is in eisenstein where one's going to overcome sure yeah and we get the new soviet man it's that no the new soviet man is this technological fusion <laughs> yeah okay so and i have no idea so just tell me if this is fair in as i'm hearing this eisenstein what Deleuze is reading in that comes down to the content. What, 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 you know, what Eisenstein is capturing or what he's trying to convey. Whereas with Vertov, it seems as though even the very form, the process itself, that is a person actually going around with a camera, is what kind of excites Deleuze in that it's like implicating the spectator, a term we haven't really arrived at yet, yeah. more. Because like, where is this person going to go? Yeah, I think for Deleuze, it's... Spectator maybe isn't even really the right word. It's the consciousness. Camera consciousness yeah. or the cinema, cinematography. Yeah. It's it's the 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 camera is the consciousness for okay. Bertov. Yeah. Whereas in Eisenstein it's capturing yeah, consciousnesses and conflict. It's yeah. the thing out there. Um okay, and then the third section we're gonna get into I think it's the French and the German schools. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, he talks about sort of French, um, what's sometimes called impressionist cinema. Yeah. And so uh, I guess famous films to think of from this period would be like Ballet Mécanique. I haven't seen Have it. Have you ever but... heard of that? It's a surrealist film. It's a short. Okay. Or a proto-surrealist film. I, I guess you could almost call it a Dada film. Okay. But it's obsessed with like automation, automatism. Uh, and like machines being used in contexts that are like not standard contexts. Right. Right. Uh, so there's, there's a kind of soul in the machine. Yeah. And it's, it be, it becomes a very animated sort of soul. Um, and then how does it embrace movement? Cause it, cause, cause French cinema for him does something special with movement. Yeah, I think we'll get to that later on with the liquid perception. Oh, we're not th- okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah, this is this is a little on. bit before. Okay, that. okay, okay. Well, uh, let's that back it that'll up. become this. Back it up, David. Back it up. Yeah. But with uh, so what this is about is a kind of sublime, right? But it's a it's a mechanical sublime or a mathematical sublime. So it's a sublime that's where we're overwhelmed, but it's measurable. Uh huh. Uh, and so he contrasts right. this with German Expressionism, which is going to be the dynamic sublime. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this is like German Expressionism, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, right. uh, Nosferatu. And and it might be, I'm, I'm incredibly naive, but uh, one of the things that I think he just makes reference to is the fact that these films are incredibly dark. Like, yeah. they're just dark films and that for him is not inconsequential like they do speak to this idea of this expressionist attitude or style belonging to german cinema is that is that is that fair yeah i think so there's a real there's a real war in german expressionism between the non-organic right and organic life and the horror of the non-organic yeah and that the only thing you can kind of do with this non-organic is like completely burn it away yeah 
And that's like a really vivid passage. It's like he seems to be like German Expressionism, even if it's not in color, it's red. Yeah. It's it's red. Yeah. It's burning. Um and so yeah, there's you get that like with the French, it's just like light and light and motion and you know, the spirit and automation and things like this. And then with German cinema you get this conflict and you get this darkness, this stark yeah. like chiaroscuro, light and dark. And then, yeah, he, he loves the ending of Nosferatu because he's like, the red just burns everything up. Yeah, yeah. And so this is like the dynamic sublime. It's that which sort of exceeds conscious perception. Like, we can't even take it in. The image just burns away. Right, yeah. Um, and so he kind of ends up being at the this place where he's like, so we have these three kinds of montage we have the the soviet dialectical we have the french mechanical sublime or we have four sorry i forgot the organic we have, yeah the american we, we organic. have american yeah. organic yeah. soviet dialectical uh french mathematical sublime german dynamical sublime yeah and i think it's interesting that this is this is a theory of national cinema <laughs> <laughs> yeah Okay, and I, I had a question. So, it I don't know, like, films belonging to these schools all that well. So, mm. I couldn't, like, really parse out differences within these schools. But, like, how faithful, like, are people belonging to these schools ostensibly? Like, how faithful are they to the kind of system or the kind of description that Deleuze lays out? Like, does everyone belonging to, you know, post-World <laughs> War II French cinema embody this? I mean... It's it's tricky to really to really go as absolute as Deleuze does because sure. there are I think I think even in German cinema this is maybe the easiest example to take up is there's a split between German expressionism and then uh, the art movement that came afterwards called Das Neue Sachlichkeit. Which okay. was a kind of a form of realism. Uh, it was like the new sacred thing, uh, is the rough translation. And so they were concerned with getting back to reality. And a filmmaker like Pabst, who Deleuze talks about the famous scene in Pandora's box where Jack the Ripper murders yeah. uh, the prostitute, or Lulu, the main character of the movie. Um, like that's that's not an expressionist film, historically speaking. But for Deleuze, this is it German is. expressionism. <laughs> right, 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 right. Just slap it in there, like it belongs. Yeah, and so there there is a real tension between different schools of silent German cinema. Yeah, and in the French too, you have you have Epstein's, uh, I guess you'd say, more sort of grounded uh, stories. And you have Gantz's historical epics like Napoleon. Right. Like these films aren't contiguous in the way Deleuze seems to be saying. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, he's broadly right, I think, in terms of the thematic okay. sort of through lines. I think at this point in film history, there is enough of a separation between different types of film that national cinemas do have really distinct identities yeah yeah and i think deleuze does a decent job of parsing those yeah uh but at the same time it's like he's not really interested in history he's interested in the signs yeah yeah um yeah so that's super interesting <laughs> so on that note we'll wrap this one up here um and for those that listened, great. Uh, that got us through about, I don't know, a good a good chunk of this, but we'll continue it in the in the next episode. Um, any other thoughts from you? Um, any, any any plugs you want to you want to? Oh play? yeah, uh, please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Cello Burke. Uh, yeah, if I publish anything, go look for it at some point. But right now. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. 
Oh, I'll be at the Film Studies Association of Canada conference this summer. Um, yeah, plug that. <laughs> yeah, I've had I've had people being like, oh, are you yeah. going to be at this conference? So, yeah, all right. Yeah. Oh, hit me up on Lex. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, it's a dating app for queer women and non-binary folk. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay, sick. Yeah, so you should just be on Lex. Like, yeah. this is what, what you should do. Um, all right, great. All right, so if you listened, awesome. Uh, and we'll catch you next time. Peace out.